The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. If it's Thursday morning, it's time for a cup of coffee and a PIs Declassified. Today we're going to be talking about an investigator's journey investigating death row cases. So investigating a capital case, one that's already exhausted all of its appellate rights, is one of the most challenging tasks in a criminal defense investigator's world. It's called a writ of habeas corpus. It is a death row inmate's last relief from execution, its last opportunity. If you do not know there have been 144 death row exonerations since 1973. That's according to the Death Penalty Information Center. It's daunting to think that people have been uh, spent years on death row and are exonerated, that they actually were innocent of the crime they were charged. Investigation on a case, post-conviction particularly, a capital case is a thankless but absolutely ever-demanding responsibility. And so a person whom I highly respect is Joseph Thornton. Hi, Joe. Hi, Francie. Welcome to the show. I'm just so excited to uh, uh, put a little light on this topic that I think the general public has pretty much no idea what an investigator goes through <laughs> on a case, on a capital case investigation, uh, particularly uh, a post-conviction investigation. But... In the me- but before we start that, to give our listeners a little flavor of your background, Joe, you're bo- you were born in Portland, Maine and grew up there, right? I did. And then you went to a Jesuit school, a preparatory Jesuit school? school here in Portland, yeah. And were you thinking that you wanted to go into uh, some kind of Catholic service, or did that no. just happen no, as a prep was, school? It was just the best, uh, best high school in southern Maine. Okay. And then uh, you went on to Boston. Yeah, I got a scholarship to Boston College, which is also Jesuit, and uh, did four years there in the liberal arts program. And your, um, your BA is in English and philosophy? Correct. And then you decided to go to law school? I did. <laughs> but did you, did you finish that, or, or did you decide that wasn't for you? No, I decided early on that it wasn't for me, but it took uh, four semesters to get out of there finally, and uh, I had always had an interest in investigation, and, uh, you know, that flowed naturally from the uh, law school background experience, and uh, 
I've been doing it ever since, uh, since 1975. Wow. And then you started uh, Lawyers Investigating Service? Yes, in 75. In 75. Wow. Then... um, and you're also you're also licensed as a private investigator in several states. I have been over the years. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and are the just out of curiosity, is, does that includes Maine, what New Hampshire, yeah, Florida? Yeah, I've been licensed in Maine and New Hampshire for uh, you know the years that I was running lawyers investigating service in Portland. Um, I also got licensed in North Carolina in 95 when I moved down there for a few years. Um, I had held a license in uh, Florida in the late 80s, early 90s, because I had an office in uh, Palm Beach Gardens. And mm-hmm. uh, then back in Boston in 05, uh, I got the Massachusetts license. And uh, But my main license has been current since 75. And and how do you find the licensing laws from state to state that the states you've been licensed in, in have they been similar or have you in some you have to jump through more hoops than others? How does that work? Yeah, it's, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, Florida and Massachusetts are a little more complicated than Maine and North Carolina. Uh, for some reason, the New Hampshire license was uh, onerous to get, but. Um, hmm. Okay. You know, it varies. Right. And what made you decide to go to work for the Federal Public Defender's Office? Um, well, I had sold the agency in Maine to uh, another NALI member, um, Alan Goodman. Right. And we had moved out of state to North Carolina. My wife uh, was a trial lawyer and um, a partner in a firm here in Portland, and she got tired of practicing law and was interested in court administration and got a position in North Carolina. We had hired in the Maine winters and uh, moved down there. And I worked as an investigator in North Carolina for five years. Sarah then went from a court administrative position there to the Court of International Trade in Manhattan. So I basically just uh, moved to keep her company. And um, Mm -hmm. uh, while she was in Manhattan, I jumped into the Federal Defender's Office in Philadelphia. And... Was there was that a hard decision or was it or not? That's an interesting question. I was uh, on the putting green at English Turn at the Nally <laughs> meeting. Okay. And I had uh, I had interviewed with the or I guess I hadn't interviewed. I had, you know, I had interviewed. I had applied for the position at the Federal Defender's Office and uh, interviewed for it, and I wasn't sure it was something that uh, I really wanted, but. Uh, I got a call while I was on the putting green and asked to make a decision and decided to go there and uh, never looked back. Interesting. And that was in Philadelphia. And, and were you doing uh, mainly criminal defense cases prior to that? No, my practice in uh, Maine was varied, uh, in both civil and criminal, but uh, I had always preferred the criminal defense work. It's, uh, you know, the most interesting stuff, I think, that we do as investigators, and uh, the stakes are certainly highest there, and, uh, you know, we only have approximately 30 homicides a year in Maine annually, Um, uh, and I managed to work on a few of those uh, Mm -hmm. while in Maine, you know, two or three a year, so I had a taste for criminal defense uh, homicide investigations, and 
you know, the federal defender slot was certainly uh, a steady diet of homicides, and, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it immensely. It's probably the best job I ever had. You know, our, <laughs> our listeners might think, why in the world would anybody want to work on, uh, you know, defending a, somebody that committed murder or several murders or many of the onerous torturous things that happen in particularly in death penalty cases. What would you say to that, Joe? Well, as you know, Francie, everybody's entitled to a fair shake, uh, regardless mm-hmm. of what they're charged with. And, uh, you know, the, the sad fact is that the, uh, the application of the death penalty in the United States is racist. Um, Pennsylvania, which uh, has the fourth largest death row in the country, is um, almost 80% uh, people of color. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, Pennsylvania has been described as um, uh, Philly and Pittsburgh with Alabama in between. And uh, you know, I had <laughs> never spent any time in, in uh, Pennsylvania, but uh, certainly came to appreciate the wisdom of that insight. <laughs> For sure. Um, I, I'm surprised. I didn't know Pennsylvania was uh, the fourth largest. I certainly know California is the largest, but I wasn't aware. Probably Texas is next. Is Texas, Florida. Florida? Yeah. Oh, I think, okay. I think it's Texas, Florida. After yeah. California. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So, so you're... You've gone to work for the Federal Defender's Office, and this is an, this habeas unit only handles post-conviction capital cases. Correct. So how there, do you get started? There is star- a Federal Defender Office in Philly that, uh, you know, mirrors a typical Federal Defender Office nationally where they work at the trial level on federal uh, cases. But uh, the unit I worked in was uh, the capital habeas unit in uh, we worked exclusively on capital cases. So, how? I mean, t- tell us about your first day there and how you got started. And um, because I, I know one of your questions was always, "How many bodies? How many yeah, bodies yeah. did this person murder?" That wasn't the first question I posed, but <laughs> okay. it was certainly <laughs> it was certainly um, one that I learned to ask. Uh, as I was assigned a new case because um, I was just curious uh, as to the complexity of the uh, the case, you know, what, how, how long a tail it had. Uh, typically, uh, capital cases, by the time my unit got them, um, uh, you guys had been on the row for 10, 20, some 30 years before we actually uh, addressed the uh, habeas petition in federal court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that may be a surprise to many people that uh, even the appeal process, just to get uh, a capsule case looked at initially, is, you know, four or five, six years. Yes, uh, the, all the state court appeals, uh, the issues raised uh, in state court need to be exhausted and disposed of finally before... Uh, client is entitled to review in federal case in federal court so uh, it's a time-consuming exhaustive process and just uh, also to expand on that a little bit when when a case when somebody is convicted and it goes to 
well, in California, it's called the First Appellate Project, but they, where they get an attorney assigned uh, to them to do their appeal. Um, that attorney, the new attorney, the appellate attorney, has to read everything that happened prior to that time. Correct. So, as this process, and and then often there is another attorney that comes in to handle a federal appeal once yeah. the state appeals are exhausted. Yeah, new set of attorneys in federal court. New set of attorneys who, and those attorneys have to, again, start all over because everybody's looking for the one thing or the two things or three things that somebody missed. Yeah, any issue uh, that can be uh, explored and developed uh, on which relief can be granted is what we're looking for. And then when it gets to the habeas unit, um, the habeas unit, when you're doing a writ of habeas corpus, you have a little bit more freedom in pursuing claims than you do on a regular appeal where they have to just go by the trial court's transcript. Is that, isn't that correct? Yeah, you know, we're looking for newly discovered evidence, uh, ideally a Brady claim, um, um, prosecutorial misconduct, police misconduct. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we had a lot of success with, uh, uh, you know, jury uh, selection issues, uh, discrimination. Uh, the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office uh, was famous for... Uh, striking uh, jurors of color um, without, you know, any valid reason. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the DAs there, and uh, Lynn Abraham, who is known as the Black Widow uh, because of her propensity for seeking death penalty uh, in any death-eligible case, had an Joe, can you, can you hang on to that for a second? This, this sounds really interesting. Can you hang on while we take a quick, quick break? Absolutely. Okay, we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Joe Thornton. He's had considerable experience in handling investigations on post-conviction death penalty, or capital cases as we call them. So, Joe, you were just about to tell us about this person that is referred to as the Black Widow. Yes, her name is Lynn Abraham. She was the DA in uh, Philly for uh, several years, and all of the years that I worked there, which was from 99 to um, 05, um, she had an assistant in her office named Jack McMahon who um, made a training tape that um, we managed to get a hold of uh, for assistant DAs in her office on how to effectively strike black jurors without running afoul of the, uh, uh, you know, the law prohibiting thing. Really? Wow. Yeah, and she got... Pretty- and- it was and pretty she w- powerful stuff, and uh, it was instrumental in uh, uh, the lawyers for whom I worked uh, getting relief in a lot of Philadelphia death penalty cases. That's amazing. And, and well, what's amazing is that the prosecutors she was training would, would accept that. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it's not only surprising, but very sad. But, uh, it is very sad. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Brady material, so can you, would you explain what that is? Sure. Uh, Brady claim is uh, it's based on a Supreme Court case by that name, which um, uh, compels the prosecution to turn over any exculpatory evidence to the defense. Um, uh, Philadelphia, you know, has the... Rizzo legacy of law enforcement, Uh, the police department has been rife with uh, corruption and uh, misconduct claims for decades. Um, The DA's office uh, is often complicit in terms of uh, withholding any information which uh, might be valuable in terms of uh, establishing innocence of a particular uh, individual whom they've charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ways we got relief was to, uh, in the course of our investigation, turn up evidence of ex- you know that's exculpatory that the DA had in their possession or that the police had in their possession and failed to disclose to the defense. And actually, the um, correct me if this is incorrect. Um, the prosecutor has the responsibility of making sure that all evidence available is that he has. And, he, and even, if the, even if the police withhold something and the prosecution doesn't know about it, the prosecutor is still responsible for disclosing or making sure that information is disclosed. That's right. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I had a I had a case years ago where the FBI was involved and they didn't provide the FBI didn't provide in fact they marked their files in a certain way where um they knew that this is information wasn't to be turned over and uh even though the our prosecutor that was trying the case didn't know about it he was still responsible for that Brady violation yeah and uh, you know in the most recent uh cases in Massachusetts involving Whitey Bulger, um, you know, the FBI was not only um, uh, complicit in uh, withholding uh, exculpatory evidence uh, in, a, in any variety of cases, but they actually, uh, you know, it's been established in federal court that uh, uh, they were in cahoots with Bulger in terms of uh, uh, framing innocent people. Uh, you know, hmm. Famous federal cases uh, establishing that uh, have spun out from the Bolger cases. And you know, what would you say to to people that maybe are listening or law enforcement that uh, ascribe to? Well, this you know, this guy must have done something, so we might as well get him on this since we didn't get him on the, whatever else he did. Well, you know, it's supposed to be a level playing field, and. Uh, uh, any uh, anyone who embraces uh, or employs that philosophy is uh, being dishonest. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, when you get a case, a post conviction habeas case, where do you start, Joe? What are you, what's your protocol? Well, when I was at the uh, habeas unit, um, when I would be assigned a new case, uh, the first thing I would see is uh, uh, a dolly full of banker's boxes being rolled into my office uh, by one of the Mm. paralegals. Um, You know, I work with a very talented group of uh, extremely bright, capable lawyers there who uh, get most of the credit for any relief that we get for our clients, but... uh, the fact of the matter is that um, the investigators in the unit were the first ones, uh, the investigators and the paralegals were the first ones to uh, really get their hands dirty in terms of parring through the record. And the record, uh, you know, in a case that's uh, wound its way through the uh, state court appellate process, uh, you've got trial transcripts, you've got uh, uh, pretrial motion to suppress transcripts, you've got uh, transcripts of the appellate proceedings, uh, you've got all of the discovery that uh, was presented at various points in time, uh, the police reports, pathologist uh, reports, uh, you know, any, any forensic lab reports, all that stuff needs to be digested and cataloged, and um, you, know, you have to be familiar with the record before you even think about stepping out into the field trying to... Um, locate people after 10, 20, 30 years, uh, re-interview them, and, um, you know, look for evidence that may have been shared with law enforcement or the DA's office uh, that uh, didn't turn up in the um, court-appointed defense lawyer's files. Yeah, and and as I mentioned before, it's a thankless job because nobody wants to go back and talk about whatever happened 20, 30 years ago. No, it's uh, like pulling teeth. Uh, you know, it's considered ancient history to everyone, but the uh, your client who's locked down 23 hours a day, um, you know, it, the 
case is still very much alive and real to them. And, uh, you know, as an investigator, you have to persuade uh, whomever uh, you're approaching that uh, uh, it's a matter of import and uh, it's still current. And, uh, you know, the ability to get an invest, to get a witness to talk to an investigator who chooses or doesn't want to talk to an investigator is, uh, you know, one of the hardest things we do. It's, it's, uh, and, and how do you approach that, Joe? Very straightforwardly. Identify myself, explain what's going on, and, uh, you know, try to put the person at ease as much as possible. And, uh, uh, you know, George Posner, Posner, who was a longtime NALI member. Um, yes, I know, I know George. Yeah, great guy. Uh, yeah. I remember listening to him when I was a relatively new investigator and a new member at NALI uh, say that he had never met a witness whom he didn't leave as a friend. Uh, Mm. You know, just an ability to talk with people. Yeah, yeah. What do you think was the most difficult uh, situation you were ever involved in as far as trying to get somebody to talk? It would be hard to... uh, be hard to say, huh? Pick one, you know. Uh, in, in any case, uh, especially victims, uh, you know, the cops who have uh, successfully prosecuted someone, uh, you know, they they don't want to reopen old wounds. Uh, but um, you know, you, you have to do it. It's, it's uh, you just try to prevail upon them for their sense of fair play and justice. Well, you know, Joe, I read an article that you wrote um, regarding this issue, and you talked a lot about uh, this case from Cincinnati um, that you pursued throughout the case. You want to talk about that? Uh, Generally, sure. Yeah, just generally, kind of what you went through um, with that case. Maybe that would give people more of a flavor of what you get involved with. Yeah, this was a case with, uh, to which I was assigned relatively early in my uh, habeas um, career. Um, a young man who, in 85, at age 30, was uh, tried and convicted of a homicide in uh, western Pennsylvania. Um, his co-defendant was an 18-year-old woman who was carrying his child. Um, She had been the victim of um, abuse, sexual abuse over the years at the hands of an elderly neighbor in this town in western Pennsylvania. Um, Her mother had moved to Cincinnati, so she had followed her there, and um, uh, she met my client there, and, um, you know, they fell in love. Uh, She became pregnant. Uh, he didn't have any steady source of income, nor did she. Um, but she said, you know, I think if we go back to where I'm from in Pennsylvania, that I can get some money. They had applied for welfare benefits, I believe, in Cincinnati. And um, uh, while those were uh, taking time to be uh, processed and approved or whatever, um, she drags my client to Pennsylvania uh, just on the vague uh, representation that she thought that she could get some money there. Well, it turns out that uh, uh, 
the money she was after was from the elderly neighbor who had abused her and from whom she had obtained money for sexual favors over the years. Mm -hmm. um, turned out to be a violent confrontation. The older neighbor was stabbed uh, in the course of a robbery attempt. Uh, she, was, she had been unable to um, gain any money from... Uh, sexual favors with him at the, at the time of this visit, and things went bad. Uh, my client stabbed uh, the elderly gentleman three or four times, never denied it, um, left thinking that the guy was still alive, um, and the two of them fled, he and his, the co-defendant, uh, who, by the way, was... Uh, immediately after their arrest 10 days later, rolled over on my client and claimed that he had been solely responsible for the stab wounds. It turned out that after the three or four stab wounds that my client had inflicted, that she had turned around and stabbed this guy 53 more times while my client was out of the room. Um, mm. By the time he came back, uh, you know, the fellow was... Uh, bleeding profusely, and, and uh, they take off. Again, upon their arrest 10 days later, um, he, in an interview with the police, admits to his role. She denies any role, blames everything on him. He's charged capitally. She's uh, charged with homicide, but not capitally, and gets life. Um, he goes to trial first and gets death. Um, he refuses to uh, implicate her because she's uh, beyond the three or four stab wounds that he admits to because she's carrying his kid. Mm -hmm. So he's convicted rather easily by an all-white jury. My client is African-American. The co-defendant is African-American. The victim is an elderly uh, Caucasian. Um, uh, the Ku Klux Klan is alive and well in this western Pennsylvania town, and, um, you know, it didn't take long to convict him. Uh, he's death-sentenced, and uh, the appeals process begins. Uh, begins before, you get, before you get into that, we have, I'm sorry, we have to take another break, uh, Joe. More to come on investigating post-conviction capital cases. Don't go away. This is compelling. Be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. 
Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Joe Thorne and I are talking about uh, investigating post-conviction uh, capital cases. And, Joe, you were just saying that the, the Klan was alive and well in Pennsylvania. And I think that may be a surprise to a lot of people because this wasn't that long ago. You said the year was what? 85. Yeah, 85. So probably the most of the country uh, – part of the rest of the country who doesn't, you know, maybe isn't in the South or in the, um, Pennsylvania, may be really surprised about that at any rate. Um, so go on with your story. Uh, where were we? <laughs> well, you were just saying that uh, um, yeah, you were describing the community. I got it. So, uh, uh, you know, we get the case in 99, uh made its way through the state Supreme Court and back, uh, relief denied. Um, so uh, we pick it up in 99 um, and uh, paw through boxes of uh, stale, moldy records and uh, you know, then uh, head out to western Pennsylvania where this occurred and into Cincinnati, which uh, we did a rather extensive mitigation investigation in, in Pennsylvania, in addition to guilt phase issues, um, uh, you know, we have penalty phase issues where if somebody's charged capitally and they're convicted, uh, then the jury considers whether uh, death should be imposed. And at that point in time, um, the trial lawyer is entitled to to present mitigating evidence, evidence which might uh, otherwise explain uh, what could be viewed as... uh, uh, behavior worthy of the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and this involves anything, uh, any social history that uh, might have influenced um, uh, the defendant in uh, the course of his lifetime. So, uh, you know, the investigation uh, was uh, two pronged. It was the guilt phase investigation as to what happened in uh, Western Pennsylvania and then what shaped and molded my client. Uh, uh, to make him what he was uh, at age 30 when this happened. Um, we discovered uh, a couple of valid Brady claims that were instrumental in uh, persuading the uh, uh, judge to... We had to exhaust his appeals in state court. He had one more bite at the apple, a PCRA in state court. So we perfected that in anticipation of bringing this to federal court. What's and, a PCRA? Uh, what is a PCRA? Post-conviction relief appeal. Okay. Um, he was actually granted a new trial in uh, state court based upon uh, uh, 
variety of issues, including the Brady claim that uh, Brady claims that we had uh, developed. And, presented. and what and what were the Brady claims? What had they withheld? Um, we we managed to get our hands on uh, during the course of our investigation material that. Um, the state had in their possession at the time of trial and failed to share with the defense. Um, my client stabbed this fellow with a pair of scissors that were lying on a mantle uh, in his home. Um, there were 57 stab wounds. The pathologist opined uh, at the time of the homicide that the wounds were probably made by a knife. Um, the defense uh, at the time, uh, rather inexperienced uh, defense lawyer, court appointed to this case, um, never really uh, picked up on that or developed, uh, uh, you know, the discrepancy between the coroner's opinion that uh, this was probably a knife and the fact that uh, Roger had admitted using uh, a pair of scissors. So... Um, and the significance of that, the significance of that is the wounds would look much differently from yeah, a knife wound to a, the fifty-three stab wounds over yeah. and above the three or four he admitted to would be different in shape and diameter to a mm-hmm. scissor wound. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also discovered that a knife had been found a short distance from the scene, in addition to the bloody scissors which our client admitted to the police that he had discarded. The fact that a knife was found nearby was never disclosed to the original trial counsel. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, you know, the fact that uh, 57 wounds were inflicted, um, the fact that this guy had sexually abused the co-defendant over a number of years, um, you know, with uh, most of the psychiatrists and psychologists who see this stuff say that, uh, you know, if somebody is abused or battered, um, when they finally vent their frustration, mm-hmm. uh, they'll either empty a gun or stab until they're run out of energy stabbing somebody. You know, it's a crime of passion rather than robbery. Yeah. You know, the three or four wounds were much more consistent with uh, an, a robbery attempt. The, uh, the remaining 53 wounds, which were inflicted by a knife, so, uh, a weapon dis different from the scissors, obviously, uh, suggested uh, uh, a crime of passion. And so just to clarify, so your client, Roger, got the, was sent to death row. The woman who was the, the victim of the sexual abuse and obviously went into an attack of rage served life in prison without parole. She's still in was, prison, yeah. She's still life. in prison. I interviewed her at the uh, uh, SCI Muncie, where the women are incarcerated in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And did she admit that that was the case when you talked to her? Tough cookie. She never came out and admitted admitted it. Um, She was a striking African-American woman, uh, very attractive even after having been in prison for the number of years that she was when I interviewed her. It was easy to see why my client was infatuated with her. Um, But, um, you know, she had had a very uh, uh, tough life, uh, 
know, she had been abused not only by this fellow but uh, others and uh, um, grew up in an impoverished uh, environment. Um, you know, the, this, the sad truth about uh, capital cases is that many of the um, clients, uh, the defendants, if you will, are a product of, uh, uh, you know, neonatal alcohol syndrome, uh, you know, they're probably damaged in utero and uh, uh, they get out and life doesn't become much better. You know, they're raised in uh, uh, flats without heat, uh, without running water. They're sexually abused and preyed upon and, um, you know, there's a lot of... uh, a lot of studies that um, the hard wire in the, br- in the brain changes um, when you're subjected to that kind of abuse for those uh, periods of time during your formative years or in utero. And, um, you know, it's no wonder that, uh, you know, we have people who don't uh, fit into society. And how, what's your opinion, Joe, of how many clients on clients um people on death row are mentally ill well i'd be hard pressed to put a percentage but i there was certainly a significant uh, number of my clients uh, whom i met personally and on, on whose cases i worked uh, who had uh, you know valid atkinson claims uh, that were never perfected who had uh, uh, extensive psychological uh, uh, damage and histories that were never explored fully at the trial level. And uh, uh, part of what we were tasked with was to uh, develop this information and present it uh, uh, at the appellate level. And when you say Atkinson's claims, what does that mean? What's the definition the of that? The recent Supreme Court case uh, saying that you can't <laughs> execute mentally retarded people uh, Many of uh, my clients were uh, uh, borderline uh, mentally retarded, if not uh, significantly mentally retarded. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and so w- when you uh, are working on a case like this, you're actually visiting with the client on death row. Yes. Can we're going to have to take a break soon, but could you, could you, well, maybe we, maybe we should just go ahead and take a break and let you start from the beginning. But I'd like to hear your experience on what it's like to go to visit somebody on death row, what that looks like, and what you have, the hoops you have to jump through to get in to see your client. Sure. So we'll be right back after our break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today, I'm just really pleased to have private investigator Joe, Joe Thornton with me today to discuss investigating post-conviction capital cases. And Joe, you were, I just had asked you to talk about visiting with your client or clients on death row. Explain what that looks like and what it feels like and what you have to do to get there. Uh, yeah, most uh, death rows are fairly uh, intimidating places. Uh, you usually have to travel some distance. Most of the uh, death row um, inmates were housed in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, um, in that state. And, you know, that's across the entire state from Philly, which is where we were. This is out on the uh, Pennsylvania-West Virginia border. And... Um, uh, so, you know, you're looking at a flight to Pittsburgh and then an hour and a half drive down to Waynesburg and you get to this very antiseptic-looking uh, facility that is ringed in barbed wire and uh, several layers of security. Uh, you go into a lobby and you have to present yourself to uh, one of the uh, turnkeys there that uh, screens you. You have to have been pre-approved for a visit. You have to be placed on the inmates' visiting list, so-called. The, uh, the institution does a background investigation on you before they approve you to be on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you present yourself for a scheduled appointment and uh, you have to, uh, you can't take anything into the, uh, on the road that has any metal. You, you know, if you're bringing reports in for the client to review, uh, you have to remove staples and paper clips. Uh, uh, you can't bring any maps into the institution. <laughs> they're, they're afraid the guys might have a map to find a way out of there or something, I guess, but it's bizarre. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I know if, you, if you're a female, you can't wear an underwire bra. Yeah, the, the woman in <laughs> my you office don't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always complained about that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you and go through a, you know, we would go through uh, one uh, metal detector at the entrance to the prison, and then we'd have to go through a, a drug uh, swab where they swab your hands to make sure you're not bringing any drugs in, and then you sit in the foyer there until uh, they bring the inmate from uh, the L unit uh, where, he, where he's incarcerated, uh, locked down 23 hours a day, 
they strip search them and uh, lug them up to the visiting area. And once they've got them in a little cubicle, they uh, allow you to go down there and uh, you walk through the bulk of the prison where the uh, this particular SCI. Jeez, uh, uh, I forget the name of it. That's terrible. I spent. Uh, months there. But, um, you know, you go down this series of corridors where the general population is housed into the uh, uh, death row. And, um, you know, that's a whole world unto itself. Um, the, you never have any human contact while you're there. The guards that you deal with are behind, uh, you know, a plexiglass window. You have to present your paperwork through a slot. And then they tell you when you're permitted to go into the cubicle, there's probably a half a dozen rooms that, uh, uh, you know, have only a chair and uh, a phone with which to communicate with your client. No human contact. And, uh, you know, you're allowed two or three hours and then there's a lockdown and, uh, you know, if you're you're stuck in the prison during the lockdown, you you pull your heels for another half hour, and then you finally get out of there. Yeah. I, and, I usually try to schedule two or three client visits on the same day and just spend the day there. Mm-hmm. And that takes its toll as well. That's a very yeah. hard day. No question. No question. Yeah. It's, uh, stressful for the uh, client who gets strip searched twice and, uh, you know, but, you know, they look forward to it because it's the only contact they have with the outside world unless right. family members visit. And, you know, there were some some clients who were lucky enough to have regular visits and other clients who never saw any family members. So, uh, they, uh, well, it's interesting that uh, it's interesting to me that you only have a phone uh, contact visit th- through a glass, I guess. Yeah. Um, in San Quentin. Where I've been, uh, you're, you're actually in a room, a, a small room that's surrounded with a plexiglass that, that the guards can see through, but you're actually in there with a table and two chairs. Um, so you have, you have uh, contact, physical mm-hmm. contact with the client? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Not in Pennsylvania. The, this prison that uh, I'm describing is uh, where Charles Grainer and Lindy England, the guards of Abu Garib fame uh, mm-hmm. were guards before they went over to uh, that famous prison. Yeah, so uh, so it's a supermax as well as being a capital. The, de- the death, death row part is yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Just a little, just a little bit different from state to state. Uh, quite interesting, and you know, uh, and do you have to have a letter from the attorney of record also besides being on the on the inmates visiting list? Yeah, usually had credentials identifying us as working with the uh, attorney of record for the client. And and I I think you said this, but just to point out, just because you have all these things set up, you have an appointment, you have a letter, you have your credentials, you have uh, scheduled time, they know you're coming, that doesn't mean they're not going to mess with you all the way through. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, I I can't tell you the number of times that I got there and for whatever reason, the prison was in lockdown and uh, you either didn't get to see your client that day or, um, uh, you know, during the course of the interview, uh, something happened somewhere in the the, uh, prison and uh, 
uh, you know, the interviews are terminated and uh, the, the prison goes into lockdown. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and these these guys uh, are so dysfunctional that uh, sometimes you go out there for a visit and they refuse to come out. I mean, they've had a bad night or uh, something's yeah. happened or they've been put in administrative segregation and nobody's bothered to tell you and, uh, you know, you've come out there for nothing. Well, and I remember reading in your article that you must have been mistaken for a medical professional or something, and so you got in for a, a contact visit? Yeah, with with uh, this particular client, in fact, uh, the one whom I described in the article. Um, I, you know, I had been in any number of prisons in the 25 years that I was in uh, this profession before I started doing death penalty cases, and I had only ever had contact visits with clients in prisons. So mm-hmm. I was surprised to, to you know, when, when I went out there, I didn't know I wasn't going to have a contact visit. I presented myself and, in fact, had a contact visit with a guy on death row. And it turned out later that uh, uh, I must have been mistaken for a doctor or something because yeah. uh, no one gets contact visits other than medical professional people. Uh, the, even the attorneys who represent these guys don't get contact visits. And then you got accused of being a plant. <laughs> well, you know, there were some crazy people in, in my unit, too. Who, uh, uh, you know, it, it takes a certain type of person to, to have a steady diet of that for uh, decades at a time. Both, both, well, on our, both sides of the bars. And I think uh, people don't realize that uh, defense investigators are a target for the prosecution, for law enforcement, for the prisons, for our, from our co-workers, because everybody's paranoid. <laughs> yeah, no question about it. Uh, Joe, this has been uh, really delightful. Um, t- I mean, it's a, it's a tough subject, but talking to you is delightful, actually. Uh, so, so what ultimately happened to your client? You, did he, he got uh, uh, relief and had to go back to trial? Uh, he was awarded a new trial, and... Um, the uh, attorney general's office agreed to um, uh, accept a resentencing to life rather than go through a new trial. Uh, he could have insisted upon a trial, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, he had been institutionalized. Uh, he was an old head. He was a trustee there, so he got to work um, in a, one of these jobs in the prison, which afforded him some freedom and uh uh, you know, he was well-liked by the guards and uh, never had been a problem in the, uh, the years that he had spent uh, in prison. And um, so he accepted the life sentence, which uh, improved his life dramatically, much more human contact. Uh, an interesting facet of this case that hasn't come out yet is that uh, when uh, he was his uh, death warrant was signed, family members of the uh, victim were notified and they were horrified uh, to think that uh, that he was going to get death my client was going to get death and they wow. actually joined forces with us and were instrumental in uh, uh, you know persuading the uh, powers that be that uh, life was more appropriate than death that's Fascinating. Joe, thank you. Uh, we have to close the show, um, but this has very, been very instructive, I think. 
And so uh, to your to listeners, PIs Declassified continues to offer content of interest to private investigators and other legal professionals. And we challenge the existing negative TV and movie myth um, for everybody. So thank you, Joe. Tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Classified.